Podcastle, episode 390, for November 17, 2015. Flash Fiction Extravaganza Bears! Rated PG. Hello there, it's your friends from Podcastle, leading you down in the woods today where you're sure of a big surprise. Because today we've another flash fiction extravaganza with a bear-flavoured theme. Well, I mean, not bear-flavoured, that would be weird. Bear-inflected? Bear... Um... Look, anyway, all the stories have bears. We start with The Sweet Life by Aidan Doyle, which was first published in Everyday Fiction in 2014. Aidan is an Australian writer and computer programmer. He's visited more than 80 countries and his experiences include teaching English in Japan, interviewing ninjas in Bolivia and going 10-pin bowling in North Korea. You can find him online at www.aidandoyle.net and on Twitter at Aidan underscore Doyle. But now, what's with all the honey? There's honey-tasting spots springing up all over. Why? Well, dear listener, listen on. The Sweet Life by Aidan Doyle The extra-large jar of honey in the staff kitchen was Toru's first hint of the coming of the bears. The next day, three of his co-workers were replaced by bears. The bears didn't join the morning calisthenics program, nor did they contribute to the conversation about the Giants versus Tigers game. Instead, they remained at their desks, taking only the occasional break to get some honey from the kitchen. After work, Toru accompanied Ishibashi and Yamamoto to their favourite izakaya. All the foreign firms are doing it, Ishibashi said. Japan has to stay competitive. Toru had a daughter in college to support, and little chance of getting a new job. They can't replace me, Yamamoto boasted. I'm the only one with the contacts in China. A week later, a brown bear in a red beret occupied Yamamoto's desk. It spent most of its time speaking Mandarin on the phone. Ishibashi was replaced the following week. At the end of the day... Toru looked around for co-workers to accompany to dinner. The bears that had replaced Yamamoto and Ishibashi were going to a pub called The Bee and Hive. Some of the other bears were having a whispered conversation about a club in Roppongi called Honey Shakers. Toru was only 49 years old, but it felt as though the world had left him behind. He proposed to his wife the old-fashioned way by asking her if she wanted to make miso soup for him for the rest of her life. Now Seiko was gone, and his daughter Mariko was the only family he had left. He had left the office alone. The train home was full of bears reading Kafka manga on their cell phones. He'd planned to eat a quick dinner at the ramen restaurant near the apartment, but it had been replaced by a honey stand. Mariko was watching a travel show about Kumamoto when he got home. Welcome back, Dad. You're home early? He didn't want to worry Mariko, so he didn't say anything about work. Mariko's phone buzzed. She read the message and laughed. The way her eyes shone when she laughed reminded him of Seiko. Would you like to get something to eat? he asked. 
Mariko's eyes widened in surprise. I've already eaten, but it was only a snack. Where do you want to go? He thought for a moment. There's a sushi place near Family Mart. That closed last year, Mariko said. Give me a minute. She reached for her phone. They ended up eating at a family restaurant near the park. Toru hadn't enjoyed a meal as much in a long time. After dinner, Mariko squeezed his hand. Just because you cherish the past doesn't mean you have to hate the future. <sighs> How did you become so wise? We had a bear exchange student in high school, Mariko replied. Bears are more afraid of you than you are of them. The next day he approached the desk of the bear wearing the red beret. Would you like to go to an izakaya? What's an izakaya? the bear asked. Toru had to stop himself from reproaching the bear. How could you live in Japan and not know what an izakaya was? It's a pub-style restaurant. I'm sorry, but I have a lot of work, the bear replied. An hour later, all of the bears left work together. He had dinner with Mariko again. Don't give up, Dad, she said. He couldn't sleep that night. It must be challenging for a bear to move from the countryside to Tokyo's neon-lit streets. He fumbled for his phone and started checking online restaurant reviews. Eventually, he found a highly recommended honey restaurant in Shibuya. The next day, he spoke again to the bear in the red beret. Would you like to go to a honey restaurant? The bear smiled. That sounds wonderful. Sweet as specialised in honey from New Zealand. The bears all ordered second and third helpings. Afterwards, he invited them out for karaoke. He could tell they weren't fans of J-pop, but they joined in nonetheless, belting out the songs in their deep voices. Seiko had loved singing Enka, the traditional Japanese ballads, and Aka, the bear and the beret, showed a surprising aptitude for crooning the sad tales. Toru lost his job a week later. But Aka recommended him to a colleague at a company helping bears adjust to life in Tokyo. Toru surprised himself at how quickly he adapted to his new job, but he never could manage more than one helping of honey. You know, I think I've seen a few bears hanging around our IT department lately. Aidan said this about the story. Japan is still a country that's resistant to immigration. One of the more common objections to immigration is that foreigners won't know how to properly sort their trash for recycling. My own country, Australia, has gone through different periods of immigration, and we still are, especially after World War II. But this always involves complaints that foreigners aren't adapting to Australian culture and that they're taking Australian jobs. When I visited India, I saw bank workers protesting against outsourcing. Their jobs had been outsourced to Bangladesh. Our next bear-themed offering is My Wife is a Bear in the Morning by David Steffen, and it's a podcastle original. David is the editor of Diabolical Plots, which has been publishing non-fiction since 2008 and started publishing fiction in 2015. He runs the Submission Grinder, a web tool for writers to find markets for their work. Dozens of his stories have been published in many great venues, including all three of the Escape Artists podcasts, as well as the Drabblecast, the Drabblecast, 
and Cast of Wonders. He's also put together a Kickstarter called The Longlist Anthology. Every year after the Hugo Awards, the Hugo administration publishes a longer list of nominated works besides the ones on the ballot. This anthology collects 21 stories from this year's nomination list from fan favourites like Ken Yu, Rachel Swirsky, Elizabeth Baer and Yuji Foster and including two stories that have been previously published by Escape Artists podcasts. At about 180,000 words, the long list anthology is a sizable volume containing some of the best fiction of 2014. The audiobook version is produced by Skyboat Media and includes 13 of those stories. The ebook, print, and audiobook version are all scheduled to release on December 15th. Hmm, handy for Christmas. Reading the story is Sean D. Sorrentino, who lives in the Raleigh, North Carolina area with his wife and his dog. But now, there's a lot to be said for making sure people understand you say what you mean and you mean what you say. My Wife is a Bear in the Morning by David Steffen Note When I say that my wife Chang is a bear in the morning, this is not an expression. I do not mean that my wife is hard to wake and is rude and surly upon rousing. I literally mean that my wife is a bear in the morning. Yes, I know what literally means. Yes, I am using it correctly. Please don't make insulting comments about my grasp of English. Please don't remark that she should turn into a panda instead of a grizzly. This is insensitive and unhelpful. I hope you excuse this photocopied note attached to our correspondence, but I have had this exchange too often to want to spend any more time on it. Dear Landlord, I am deeply sorry for the damage to our apartment that occurred on Friday. The broken patio door, the torn drywall next to the pantry, the large fecal stain in the living room carpet, the damaged cars and bicycle outside the building. I can explain everything. My wife will be starting her first semester of college next week, and we don't have time to go apartment hunting. You see, my wife is a bear in the morning. See attached note. You may or may not recall, but I mentioned this to you during our interview process and asked if you needed a larger deposit to compensate for this fact. You laughed. I told you I meant it literally, and you laughed. I am at a loss as to how I could have stated this important information more clearly than I did. I do not appreciate the tone of your letter where you accused me of keeping pets without evidence of such violation. My wife and I have never had, nor will ever have, a pet in this apartment, or any apartment. I used to have a dog before I was married, but dogs and bears do not mix well. My wife is not a pet, so her presence is not in violation of the rental agreement. There is no clause forbidding residents who are also sometimes bears. I am certain of this. I read the agreement very closely for such a clause. If you can refer me to such a clause, then I will concede your claims. If you are going to level accusations against your residence, you would do well to direct your ire at young Mr. Ellsworth in apartment 2B who was playing music at an obscene volume at 7.30 Friday morning, which, I will note, is during the quiet hours mandated by our rental agreement. If anyone should be liable for the damages to our apartment, it should be Mr. Ellsworth. He is a nice young man but old enough to learn the lesson that actions have consequences and that sometimes when you play your music too loudly early in the morning, you might be waking up a bear in the apartment downstairs. I will also note that your staff's emergency preparedness for bear rampages leaves something to be desired. I was able to tranquilize the bear before it went more than 50 feet from our apartment. 
I would have gotten there sooner, but I was on the toilet when she woke up. You are welcome for helping you recognize this hole in your procedures and for resolving the situation before anyone was hurt. I hope that you will see reason and understand that I have always acted in good faith in my interactions towards you. I trust that you will see that I have always been straightforward and honest with you, and I trust that you will honor our rental agreement. Best, Walter Wang. Oh man, rental agreements? I guess they don't usually cover acts of... bear? Our third story is about the bear by Spencer Ellsworth, and it's another Podcastle original. And get ready for a bunch of puns. Spencer Ellsworth growled out his first novel at seven years old and hasn't stopped since. His work has appeared and is forthcoming in many venues, including Tor.claw, the magazine of Furtacy and Science Furtion, Bearneath Ceaseless Skies, Urson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and very many others, including the den of Pord Castle. He lives in Bellingham, Washington with his mate and three cubs, and works as a teacher and administrator at Northwest Indian Growledge. You can find his stories, read his blog, and listen to his band at spencerellsworth.com. It's read to you by the amazing Cheyenne Wright, cartoonist, illustrator, supervillain, oh, no, wait, that's been crossed out and replaced by benevolent scientist with a vision and designer of stuff. Cheyenne is a freelance illustrator for things like the Any Award-winning Savage Worlds role-playing game, Deadlands Noir, Alton Brown, colorist on multi-Hugo Award-winning graphic novels collections of Girl Genius, and more. In fact, he's been a professional artist for so long now, there really is very little that can be done to save him at this point. In his spare time, he's teaching himself animation and video production, many samples of which can be seen at his website, arcanetimes.com. Follow him on Twitter at Shane Wright, or support his plans for the robot uprising at patreon.com docarcane. Shane lives in Seattle with his wife, their daughter, and an ever-growing stack of unpainted miniatures. But now... Oh, come on, are you serious? Surely that can't be true. Tell it to me again. About the Bear by Spencer Ellsworth The first thing to know about Tainfred was that he wrestled a bear. Around the fires in those long, cold nights in the black desert... Guarding our post in the dead city, we told a lot of stories. We didn't know each other, so to make ourselves sound more than green, untested soldiers, we told our best story, hunting stories, bedding stories, inane, pointless stories. Nothing compared to the bear story. The first night he told it, we could all tell he'd been waiting for this. His face was gleaming with a sheen of sweat, and his wide eyes nearly rolling in anticipation. He waited until one of the older recruits meandered through a long, pointless story. Now, if you've ever been to the city of Kolduras, you know they have five different sectors. Tainford jumped to his feet. Did I ever tell you I wrestled a bear? He told us. 
And then he told us again, and again the next night, and just about every night from then on. We didn't mind. It was a great story. Seems he and his father were hunting, and took shelter in a cave. Tainfred was so tired that he didn't even notice when he rolled over against a mass of black fur. He half realized something was wrong when his father called to him in a hoarse whisper from the front of the cave. So he stood up and found himself treading on the bear. The bear woke, groggy but angry. The bear reared up, pushing Tainford against the ceiling of the cave. He tried to push it back down, but it didn't go. It, it tried to claw him with his front paws, but Tainford stayed on its back. As a matter of fact, he got his arms under the bear's, came up, got it in a good, tight, wrestling lock. It raked his legs with his claws. His father had a spear ready. I want you out in one! Two, three! Tainford fell and ran for the front entrance while his father thrust the spear deep into the beast's heart, pushing it away. Wait a moment, I said one night, when Tainford and I were the last left around the fires, watching the desert for the night. Your father was able to pin an entire bear with one spear thrust. Tainford made a funny sort of gesture. It was a bit of a shrug, a bit of a shrink. I never said it was a big bear. As I gaped at him, he continued. It was sort of a teenager. A teenager? How much did it weigh? I, I don't know. He was clearly sorry he had let this slip. Think of the biggest, meanest dog you've ever seen. So, like this? I held up a hand at about the height of a dog. Bigger. Bigger than the meanest dog you've ever seen. But you outweighed it. A little, he said. Why does that matter? Are you sure there really was a bear? I asked. It wasn't just a bobcat. Or a ferret. Or a big mouse in that den. He turned away. I walked to the edge of the embankment and looked out over the darkness of the desert and laughed loud enough that he could hear me. He avoided me after that. He couldn't avoid telling the story in my presence. There were so few of us on that post that we heard everything each other said. But he wouldn't look at me when he told it. I was tempted to tell the others. Came mighty close especially when I heard him exaggerating pieces of the story about how, how big, how rough, how battle-scarred that bear was. Can't say why I didn't. It was mostly that the others were entertained on this long, boring detail. We came out there expecting to see the horrors of the black desert. You know the stories. The Gorlocks, ten feet tall like apes mated with wolves. The hoods, lurking creatures of shadow. The singers, beautiful women who would rip your throats out with their tongues. The dark lady herself, walking in a hellish wind, 
All we saw was an endless horizon of red sand. That is, until the day the beacons were lit. We all rushed to the embankment. Sure enough, there on the horizon, dust, as if from a marching column. We shone and sharpened our swords to a bright, biting gleam. We donned our armor and raised our shields and stood in formation. Our sorcerers prepared their greatest spells, but we knew that, apart from our commanders, none of the boys had seen battle. We formed a line along the wall. From here we could see them all too well. Gorlocks bigger than any men, with blunt claws and toothy muzzles, riding mounts like massive black boars. At least twice as many in that column, now riding for war, as manned our little wall in the dead city. I looked at the man next to me. It was Tainfred, gleaming with nervous sweat. Tainfred, I whispered. He looked over at me. I believe you. I looked back at the demons coming ever closer. About the bear. He nodded, and we turned to face the darkness, and shouted together. Yeesh, no atheists in foxholes? Spencer said this about the story. This is seriously based on a true story. I do know someone who wrestled a small bear and got out alive. The bear was in real life just tranquilized, not speared to death, thank the great bear above. The non-fiction stroke memoir version of the story was published at Flashquake in 2009. Next we have a story by Renee Carter-Hall called The First Winter. It first appeared in her book Wishing Season, a collection of holiday-themed short stories that was released in 2014. The story is also available from Quarter Reads. Renee Carter-Hall works as a medical transcriptionist by day and as a writer, well, all the time. Her short fiction has appeared in various print, online and audio publications, including Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, Black Static and here at Podcastle. Her latest book, Huntress, is a coming-of-age tribal fantasy for teens and adults set in a world of anthropomorphic lions. For more about that and her other work, check out her website at www.renecarterhall.com. It's read to you by one of Podcastle's wonderful associate editors, Jennifer Albert. Jennifer keeps up a respectable front, working as an entomologist at a university in Toronto. I can barely say entomologist. After hours, she keeps busy reading and writing speculative fiction, playing games, dallying about on social media, and hanging out with her husband and their very large, very hairy German Shepherd. You can find her on Twitter at Jen R. Albert. But now, have you ever wondered how winter came about? The First Winter 
by Renee Carter Hall. Cuddling close cups, close to me, here in the warm and the dark. The world outside lies dreaming in drifts of white, and I will tell you why it is so. Many ages ago the world stayed green always, and every day was long and bright. Those were the days of first bear, mother to us all, and they would have been our days too, had death not come down from the mountain. It crawled down from the highest peak, the one that scraped the sky. The beast was made of the cold black spaces between the stars, of the silences between heartbeats, all the empty things of the world given a single terrible form. Wherever its rattling breath fell, life withered, until all that remained was the forest where first bear lived. She knew every tree there by name, and one day, when she saw that death had reached them too, she walked through the wood and wept. Every tree stood bare, not a single green leaf left. Oh, said first bear, my sisters, my brothers, and all of you gone. Not all of us. A whisper came back. It was the youngest tree, barely more than a sapling. Then you're not. <laughs> no. The little tree giggled. We're only sleeping. That beast is easy to fool. Shush, said an older tree. But first bear had heard enough, and now she was thinking. If she too could trick death, perhaps she could yet live to be mother of bears, and not the last and only. Just then she heard the dark beast approach. First bear lay on her side, on the cold earth, closed her eyes, and stayed as still as she could. Perhaps death would pass her by. Oh, cubs, how brave she was. She heard death creep closer and closer, heard its black claws digging into the hard earth, scraping against stones. She felt its cold breath on her fur, and she did not open her eyes. She felt its claw touch her, and she did not open her eyes. She heard its laugh, the most fearsome sound in all the worlds that ever were, and she did not open her eyes. She did not move at all. Except the tiniest wisp of breath from her nose stirred a dry leaf. Only one breath, only one leaf, only one instant, but death's eyes are sharp cubs and death's ears are keen. The dark beast lunged, and first bear rose up with a roar to meet it. First she tore at its hide with her teeth, and bits of it flew into the wind, turning into white flakes that covered the ground. Then she bit and clawed until it bled, and its silver blood hissed and froze where it fell. Then she broke its bones beneath her paws, and with each snap and splinter, the wind howled louder. But then first bear fell into the snow, for death had bitten her in the fight as well, only once, but enough to send her into a deep, shadowed sleep. Many, many days she slept, and the snow covered her, and the trees whispered their worry to each other. They did not know if this last bite of death would ever end, if the land would ever be warm again. But the youngest tree whispered to first bear through all the long, dark nights, telling her to hold on, that the strong sun would come back some day, that all would be well, that first bear would be mother to a great and mighty people.
No one knew how long the cold and dark would last, but first bear slept, and the youngest tree hoped, and that was the first winter. At last, one day the snow melted beneath first bear, and her frozen blood thawed within her. She rose and looked about at the warming world, and she was stronger than ever before, now that she had felt death's bite and lived. In their joy, the trees burst into blossom, and the land grew green and young again, and that was the first spring. First bear went to the youngest tree. Little one, she said, it was your voice that kept me from slipping into shadow. Be blessed. And she breathed on its branches, and it grew out thin needles of a green that would stay, even in the deepest snow, to give all of us hope, as the tree had given hope and strength to first bear. Those trees remain as our promise to her people. Winter always comes, dark and cold, and with death's howl in the wind. But like the trees, we sleep, and we wait, and spring always returns. So sleep, my cubs, my dear ones, and dream of spring, for first bear is yet mother to a great and mighty people, we who break winter's back each year and live to see the land made new. Our final story today is On Not Noticing a Bear by Amy Sisson. It was first published in Everyday Fiction in December of 2014. Amy is a writer and former librarian interested in all forms of art, especially literature, ballet, opera and visual art. You can find her online at amysisson.livejournal.com Reading to you is the ever-popular Mr. Maple Leaf himself, Wilson Fowley. He's done so many readings for us I've lost count, although he probably hasn't, am I right? Wilson's day job is as a web developer for a tech company in the Greater Vancouver area in Canada, and he is the director of the community show chorus, The Maple Leaf Singers. He's still hoping to find a paying gig narrating stories, or maybe, since he doesn't really have the time to go looking for it, that one will find him. But now, what's that tugging at your coat? Don't you see it? How odd. On Not Noticing a Bear by Amy Sisson Everyone in the village thought it was ridiculous the way Laurent was pretending not to notice the bear that had become attached to his coattails. To be fair, it was a reasonably subtle bear, as bears go. It didn't grunt or growl, just padded along quietly, holding the stumpy little man's extravagant coattails gently in its snout. In fact, so subtle was the bear that Laurent was not even sure at exactly what point during his long walk home from the Archduke's court that the bear had appeared. Laurent was weary. It had been a long week at court, during which he'd been expected to cater to the royal astronomer's every whim. Royal service almost always went to a scholar's head. Laurent had looked forward to his quiet cottage and to resting his feet after taking off the tight black pointed shoes that the Archduke favoured for his staff this season. Laurent was concentrating so hard on not noticing the bear, which, as he could now see out of the corner of his eye, was rather larger than he'd initially thought, and really more of a black bear than a brown bear, that he truly did not notice the widow Vuitton until he nearly overturned her wash-basket. 
Monsieur Leclerc, you have a b- Oui, bonsoir, Madame Vuitton. A very fine evening, and a pleasant rest day to you on the morrow, Laurent said briskly. But, monsieur, a fine evening indeed, said Laurent, and walked past the widow, or rather trudged, for he felt that to quicken his pace would be to acknowledge the bear, and thus defeat. When Laurent reached his cottage, however, the bear planted its feet and held fast to his coat-tails. It even growled, although in a manner that was not at all threatening. Laurent sighed and turned around. "'Very well, Monsieur Bear,' the bear shook its head, whilst maintaining its hold on the coat-tails. "'Madame?' another shake. "'Mademoiselle?' the bear nodded, her mouth still full of thick embroidered cloth. Laurent shuddered to think what the archduke would say if Laurent returned to court with holes in his best frock-coat. "'Very well, Mademoiselle Bear, how may I be of service?' Laurent asked. The bear looked sadly at the door, then at Laurent. "'I hadn't actually planned on entertaining this evening,' said Laurent, trailing off as the bear's eyes began to glisten. "'But perhaps a short visit?' The bear brightened and dropped the coat-tails, which did not appear to have any holes in them. Laurent went inside. The bear had to wiggle to get her shoulders through the door, and once inside her bulk made the roof seem too low, but she seemed perfectly happy. She settled in front of the fireplace and looked expectantly at Laurent. "'May I get you some tea?' Laurent asked. The bear shook her head, her eyes never leaving Laurent's face. "'Or perhaps some porridge?' A vigorous nod, and Laurent turned to the kitchen to prepare a light supper of porridge and cheese." Once they had finished, Laurent sat down in his armchair with an obscure volume of astronomy that the Archduke's librarian had loaned him. Astronomy was not best perused after porridge and cheese, however, and before long Laurent sighed in his sleep with an emotion almost entirely unfamiliar to him. The bear gently nudged her head under his hand before releasing a sigh of her own. In the morning Laurent woke with the word contentment inexplicably on the tip of his tongue. Now that she was obviously welcome, the bear seemed willing to let Laurent go about his necessary business. When the time came for Laurent to return to court, she made no attempt to delay him, but simply rubbed her nose along his sleeve in an affectionate farewell. "'I shall leave the door ajar, so you may come and go as you please,' said Laurent. "'It's a pity you cannot come with me, but the Archduke takes himself very seriously, and I'm afraid he would find the idea of a bear at court rather ridiculous.' The bear chuffed softly. Oui, Laurent smiled. He dresses himself and his staff in the silliest of costumes, and makes us stand on elaborate ceremony, but there it is. Now, do you need anything before I go? I shall be back at the end of the week. You will be here when I return? The bear nodded and rubbed her snout on his arm once again. The villagers were nothing short of astonished to see Laurent's manner that morning. He was dressed as before, but for once his heavy-lidded eyes were open and smiling. It was far more astonishing than the bear itself had been two days before. "'Bonjour,' Laurent said, smiling and nodding at those he passed. "'Bonjour, Monsieur Claire,' said Eric, who was the blacksmith's son and the boldest of the village children. "'How is your bear this morning?' "'Very well, young sir,' said Laurent. "'Perhaps you could look in on her while I'm gone, so she won't be lonely, you know. There's a franc in it for you, if you would be so kind.' "'Oui, monsieur. I shall take good care of her. Merci.' Laurent's light-hearted mood lasted all the way to the Archduke's gate, and even the sight of that imposing iron could not quench his gaiety completely. 
he greeted the guards and made his way through the formal gardens, toward the terrace upon which the Archduke always breakfasted. The Archduke required his staff to report to him immediately upon their return, to ensure that they recovered as quickly as possible from the sinful leisureliness of the rest day. As he came around a row of the Archduke's prize rose-bushes, Laurent stopped short, but only for a moment. "'Bonjour, Archduke Cachette. I see you have a very fine zebra with you this morning. I wonder whether you might permit me to introduce her to my bear some day soon.' And welcome back. We asked Amy if there's anything she'd like to say about the story, and apparently it's inspired by a particular painting by James C. Christensen, which we'll link to in the show notes, and is actually the second of three such inspired stories. I did go and look at it myself. The painting is striking and eye-catching. Quite lovely. You should definitely go and check it out. To feedback now... Let's look at what people said about episode 380, Spirit Forms of the Sea, by Bogi Takach. It was narrated by the exotically and beautifully named Setsu Uzume. Some great feedback on the forums for this one. Trish M. said, I love this one. The mythic concept, the central character, the sudden turn into a mythos I wasn't expecting. It stands very well on its own, but I could also see it being the prologue for a dark future epic. Spare Inch said, I just loved this. I wish I had the words to say properly how much. Only I can't spell Cthulhu without at least three attempts. I liked the strong, confident female characters. I liked the way a traditional fantasy quest story took such a dark turn. And I always like deceptively small or frail characters who turn out to be stronger and more dangerous than they look. And Devoter135 said, Interesting concept, and I appreciated that it was explored through female characters who were warriors, or not, in their own right. I did keep imagining the spirit forms as their patronus, though. Not sure if that's a bug or a feature. It was also cool to have a story in this setting rather than the typical America, England, Western Europe. I'm going to pretend it wasn't Cthulhu, because that makes me happier. And what about you? Did you have any thoughts on this one, or indeed today's stories? We'd love to hear them. Doesn't matter if the story was a while ago, drop by forum.escapeartists.net anytime. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, including our hard-working community managers Ossicat and Talia, thanks for stopping by and listening to the stories. We'll be back next week with a new story. Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you that like the trees, we sleep and we wait, and spring always returns. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva and Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de An anonymous quote says, The rule about bears is their unpredictability. <laughs>